Well, you're not fresh off a plane and I no longer have a hangover. And my Harriet's gun has me. Your nice Harriet's gun? What's that? Calab Calabash, the green tea that I love. Oh, yeah. All right, let's do it. You're listening to The Dap Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm Aaron Stallworth. The Dap Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through Dap, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. Season four is dedicated to exploring resilience, how we hope, experience setbacks, and recover to continue pursuing our biggest ambitions. Today, we're talking with C. Brian Williams, the founder and director of the award-winning globe-trotting dance company, Step Africa. Step Africa blends the tradition of stepping with storytelling and an array of other dance forms. Yes, this is a really insightful interview. Brian tells us about the moment in high school that cemented his resolve to teach himself and others about African civilization. Step Africa is excited to return to live performances this August with the show Drum Folk, which was inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739. Check the website for the performances in your area. Now, our talk with C. Brian Williams. Welcome, founder of Step Africa, a native Texan and new friend to the DAP project, Mr. C. Brian Williams. Hey, good to be here. So we jump into the same question with every guest. Please tell us, what was your very first experience with DAP? Mm, first experience with DAP. I feel like I've been DAPing my entire life, but I would probably say the most intense period or introduction is once I got on campus at Howard University, right? I think DAP is mm -hmm. part of my experience growing up in Houston, Texas. But when I got to Howard's campus, um, I think it went to a different space especially when I joined the fraternity, right? So, you know, all of I'm a member of Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. We have our own secret DAP, if you will, that we protect fiercely. So, um, but it's always been a very important way of introducing, connecting with uh, men, especially really over these, over these, uh, over my entire life. You know, it's a different culture in Texas. DC was a magnetic, chocolate, beautiful city when I first moved here in 99, a few years before for you. Um, yeah. That cultural difference of uh, Texas upbringing versus your friends from all over the country and world uh, in Howard, how was that an entryway to, uh, int to introduce yourself to, to friends or, or was that, a, how did you find that to be a thing? You know, if I really think about it, um, I don't know how prominent it was in the way we greeted each other in Texas when I was there prior to 1986, right? I always felt, for some reason, because it's so much a part of our experience now, I feel, I feel like it's always been a part of me, but and I'm, sure it ha I'm sure it has been. It's just a very generic way that, you know, Black men will connect with each other. You know, there's going to be the handshake kind of a pseudo, uh, pseudo bump or pseudo hug, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always been with me, even in Texas. I, I wonder if DAP in a sense, although there might be different degrees of it and rituals and how you manage it, but the way black men across the diaspora greet each other seems that 
that the way we embrace, the way we connect each other through our hand seems to um, resonate across space and time, quite honestly, doesn't it? So there might be some regionalism, right? Or some cityism or whatever the heck you want to call it, but it's definitely all, it's the way that we connect and- Yeah. I know you're uh, a world traveler with Step Africa and personally. Uh, when you're in on the continent of Africa or in Sierra, Sierra Leone specifically, did you notice any similarities to depth there versus here in America or how you saw the exchange of uh, hmm. greetings with the hand gesture? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's it's all very fascinating. You're making me really dive into um, how we greet each other. Um, you know, my first time on the continent of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, I should say, is in 1990 in Southern Africa in Lesotho. And the if you will, or the way of greeting there is much more subtle. I mean, the hand is still extended, but it's a little more, uh, I don't know, it's not as aggressive as the, the African-American style of grabbing the hand and the different moves that we go through. It's definitely the hand is extended uh, and then in Southern Africa, what I noticed is when you extended the right hand to shake or whatever hand you would extend, you had to put your left hand on that arm to connect the two arms. So I couldn't just extend one to like, that was almost there. I had to extend an arm and then touch it with my other arm, right? My hand was being extended to connect it with your hand, but my arm is, is touching, my finger, hand touching my other arm to I'm really acknowledging this presence. So that dab was like a way of reverence, of respect to the person that you were connecting with. Mm -hmm. So very subtle style of greeting each other with a handshake still involved, but a slight twist, you know? It feels yeah. like there's a pause involved where the dap that I've observed is so quick Mm -hmm. And it's deliberate, but it can also be like, boom, boom, boom. But what I'm hearing you describe and how I'm envisioning that is it's like the extension, but also a pause for a second to do what, you know, your grandma would say to lay eyes on you mm -hmm. and to, you know, connect for a moment to be like, you good? Okay, I'm good too. But in a slower, slower kind of motion. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a great way to describe it. It's less energy behind the shake. It is more of a pause looking mm -hmm acknowledge, connect. Mm -hmm. Humans, we are connected. My hand is extended to yours. I guess establishing some degree of trust, relationship, mm -hmm. and then you can proceed, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like a moment yeah. of, I'm gonna say it, it's a moment of intimacy. You wouldn't do that with just everybody and you wouldn't do that with a stranger and you certainly wouldn't do it with someone you didn't trust and across cultures and the way that the United States has managed cultures or mangled cultures, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. also that additional hesitation of, I don't want to say hi to you that long. I just want to say hi and bye, or I actually do want to connect with you because as that means, I see you. And so I'm going to take a moment to be like, yeah, I really see you. Well, you know, that's fascinating because in Southern Africa in particular, in terms of greeting of each other you know what is interesting about that is you really don't discriminate in that tradition of the greeting like i'm thinking now about one of the african one of the proverbs in, 
in Pasa, which was Nelson Mandela's language, like Ubuntu, Kavuntu. Can't remember exactly how to say it, but people are people through other people. That's right. Yeah. Just by your being a person, mm-hmm. automatically giving you this respect and deference, I see you as a person. So it's quite interesting how it kind of flattens the experience in this Southern mm-hmm. African context. Whereas for us here, we give different degrees of adapt to different people. So my frat brothers, I adapt this way. My brothers, I might adapt this way. Uh, if I don't know you, there's no dap, it's just a handshake, right? So I think the dap assumes some type of tremendous familiarity in the African-American context. I wonder if what you learned from Sierra Leone and West Africa in particular, is it a familiarity? Whereas in the context I'm bringing to the space now, it's so independent. It, it is, it is, uh, it's, not, um, it's not based on familiarity. It's mm-hmm. a general means of introducing yourself to a person. So our season is about resilience. Our previous season was about coming back better, coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the presidency that was Trump into a new administration, uh, the next stage of what's happening with racial protests. And I use that vaguely with intention. And as we talked with people about that, we just kept hearing individual stories about resilience about how a person survived last year, how they did it by themselves or with community. And so we wanted to dig deeper and we wanted to dig like real deep into resilience. So we're curious about how you may have experienced resilience even as a young guy, as my mom would Mm -hmm. say, a little fella, if you're talking to my dad, short pants. Um, Mm -hmm. We think that resilience has a couple components. You hope for something, you experience a setback, and then you bounce back and recover. You might recover quickly, or it may take you a little bit to recover. Mm-hmm. And we think that that's a muscle that you develop over time. And there's a moment when you start developing resilience. So if you would take us back to little Brian <laughs> and their wild streets or fields, tumbleweed <laughs> of Texas. This is my imagination of Texas. Cause oh, okay. tumbleweed. <laughs> I don't really know anything about it. I don't, I mean, it's not far-fetched, right? Tumbleweed. Yes. I mean, there's a restaurant named Tumbleweed. (laughs) See? (laughs) See, that's what I'm talking about. There was a restaurant. (laughs) That's hilarious that you say Tumbleweed. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm a DC girl trying. All day. DC all day. Oh, absolutely. Huh. Well, I'll start, I think, if I go into um, resilience, what I've started to appreciate about the term resilience is how, I mean, human beings, we are resilient. You know, we, regardless of race, culture, and whatnot, resilience is what brings us to this space today. Our resilience, our constant adaptation to challenges, to problems, you know, I think it is, I think it is a human skill. I really do. Like, it's like, that's what we have been doing ever since we transitioned from, you know, since we became, since we developed, the, the, you know, as, as people, as whatever we are on this earth. 
So I, 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 I really appreciate the fact because I know that some folks are tired of talking about resilience, to be honest. Like they wish that there was a time where they didn't have to be resilient. And so what, like, you know, like tired of oppression, tired of systemic racism and inequality, and we have to res be resilient and manage through all that and slavery, but all these different things that we've gone through. When we talk about the black experience in America in particular, resilience is a word that we love to talk about, how resilient we are. But I do feel there's like it's a little bit of tiredness around why must we always be resilient yeah. in the structure. And what I would suggest is I think that do we, I don't think we ever really stop using that characteristic or trying to be resilient. Yeah. So I don't think we would be here, mm -hmm. not only as a black people, but as individuals. So for me, I think my resilience has always been just surviving. If a problem comes up, figuring out how to maneuver through it. A challenge comes up. I mean, I can't point to anything in particular, but you know, it, it's that is that is just to me such an innately human characteristic mm -hmm. of resilience, of surviving no matter what it is. That I don't care what the situation you throw out at me personally. I I have a feeling that there is a way to survive it. And that's what I'm interested in, is surviving and thriving, not just surviving, but and thriving in spite of the obstacle presented, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you remember a moment when you were junior high, high school, where you had a setback? Like for me, I remember, I played the violin growing up and I remember um, wanting a particular seat in the orchestra and going through the process. It was a jury process of uh, basically applying for that seat. And I may or may not have gotten it. I remember disappointments that I had on stage performing. Once I put my violin down and walked off the stage and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think those, those memories are so vivid, but they build, right? They're building blocks that we later will yeah. draw on for those, for those moments. Well, I remember there's one moment in high school that was quite, I went to a private high school in Houston, Texas, and there were only four African-Americans in my class, not very diverse. Mm -hmm. And I remember there's a class, I don't even know what class it was, but I even world history. And they were talking, and you know, we, we're talking about this now about how uh, our culture, you know, the history that we're taught, our, our students are taught, it's just not, really reflective of all the experiences. So mm -hmm. I know I do this, I'm in a class and I remember there was like absolutely no reference whatsoever to Africa and African experience. Mm -hmm. It was just out of the history books. So I asked my, mm -hmm. I, was in, I was in an advanced class world history at this private school. And so I just said, you know, quick question. You know, we're talking about Europe and all that's happening there. But what was going on on the continent of Africa at this time? Is there anything we should know about this part of the world? And, and you know, what might you say? And the professor was like, well, it was pretty much colonized and under subjugation and whatnot. Or just had nothing. Because his orientation was so focused on European history and culture, he had no, it was really ignorance. If we really break it down, it was pure ignorance. So if you look at my life now, I became, I was not satisfied with that answer and I remain unsatisfied by it. 
And I'm really committed to bringing other stories into the space. And that strengthens my resolve even more when I know how little about our culture is shared in the history books and classrooms across America. So I really want to bring forth stories through my work. And, and that, was, that was only one example of that that happened at this private school, but and others where I had to kind of really dig deeper into my own cultural experience, which would give me the resolve to not be frustrated by their lack of appreciation or their ignorance of my mm. culture. Mm. What I hear you say is that you had a hope for understanding more about your culture, about African culture specific, well, generally speaking, and then the connection between you and the continent. So you were hoping that your teacher would help you basically cross an ocean and, and reconnect. And in fact, they were dismissive and continued to be dismissive and you continued to be curious. Exactly. Leading us to where we are. That's mm -hmm. a great segue into our next question because we want to then talk more about Step Africa and Aaron's asking uh, a very particular question about the creative process. Yeah, I was curious about how things come to pass. Um, and we want to talk about the founding of Step Africa, the moments before, during, and, and, and since the founding of uh, Step Africa and the creative process that it took to get to that point of saying, I'm going to start Step Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, some things that come to mind for me is <clears throat> you, you attended Howard University, considered the mecca of uh, HBCUs. You, you uh, joined Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity around that time. Um, Spike Lee's school days came out, a different world hit the scene uh, on TV. Um, uh, you visited Southern Africa, um, all of those factors that came into play. And I'm curious when you, when you had that first uh, stepping event in Southern Africa, was it Lesotho uh, where the first event was? Like with any creative endeavor, right? The process is much more complex than whatever kind of story we can tell about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there's many phases to the development and launching of Step Africa. And over after 27 years of doing this work, um, there's so many phases, even within those 27 years from, you know, from this to who we are today as one of the largest, you know, African-American dance companies in the world. The first idea for Step Africa happens in Lesotho. Right, so I'm, this is my first job after graduating from Howard University. Uh, and I was, even though I studied marketing, I was not going to go to corporate America whatsoever, although I have full respect and love for my uh, uh, classmates who took that. I was in a very different space. So my first job is in Lesotho, teaching small business skills in a very small uh, um, center in the capital of that country. So I've come across the idea for Step Africa very, it's kind of, I don't know what the word is, but I'm literally just driving down the road in Lesotho, just on, on the way to an appointment or a meeting. And I see a young man on the side of, of a road. It's very, he's a little boy, maybe like four feet tall, but he has on like these foot high boots that are made out of plastic that I would find out are called 
gum boots, our wellies, as they call them in England. So he's bent over making rhythms and doing some motions that remind me so much of the fraternity style of stepping that I just left in Howard's campus. So I remember I was just, when I saw that, I was like, what is this? This is bizarre. Yeah. Looks just like what I just left on Howard University's campus. About what age did you say the boy was? He had to be like like maybe 10, nine years old. Mm -hmm. You know, young boy. And like the boots, I remember almost as big as he were, you know, as he was. So when uh, that sparked something in me and I actually went to my students and I asked them, look, I saw this little boy doing this dance with some big old boots is what they call them, big old boots. And they were like, that is the South African gumboot dance. And I was like, okay, what is that? I never heard about it. They actually showed me some of those uh, moves and I was just really shocked by the familiarity and similarity to stepping. So then I in turn taught them some steps. And what was fascinating at that moment is that it, it created this whole energy between us. This is like to not a lot of Americans, not a lot of exposure one-on-one -on -one to African-American culture. You know, episodic, but not true cultural exchange that happens. So when we did that little exchange of gumboot dance to stepping, it kind of just brought us, it created this energy between us that was transformative for me. Like it connected me to the continent in ways that a book or even being there would do. Mm something that I practiced and loved from my African-American experience was resonating in a very real way with these young Basutu brothers. And so that kind of just hit me. I was like, whoa, this is the spark I wanted. And so I wanted more African-Americans in particular to have that spark. So that's where the idea to create mm. Africa actually came. It was the idea was to link stepping to the African continent. And that's why the name is what it is today. To go from that idea in that classroom from the side of the road to that being a top of mind for a uh, 44 year old black man in DC uh, to think of, if you ask me about dance troops, um, you know, what, you know, what, what was the next big step? And Rhonda, you might be able to help me ask this question to see. <laughs> what Aaron wants uh, to know is, <laughs> I'm sometimes this translator. So I what he wants you. to know is what gave you the confidence to believe that Step Africa could be a thing and did seeing Spike Lee and the scene where there is stepping inspire you to not just pursue it creatively, but also know this is something that I can really grow. Yeah. You know, my family is pretty aggressive entrepreneur, right? So as far back, we, me and my brothers who are all entrepreneurs often joke that is basically get off the plantation, entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, it's almost, once you are free and they're like, the, at least one of the knees is off your neck, then we start trying to do entrepreneurship and all the challenges. I can't even imagine what my ancestors went through. Mm. Businesses in small country, rural Texas, uh, from very, very 
early in the 1900s when we started when we start first started hearing about some of the entrepreneurial activities of my of my um some of my grandparents some of my uh, ancestors so i think entrepreneurialism and independence was really important to me at a very young age and really finding my voice I think my parents supported me a lot and define finding my voice and being fiercely independent so the idea for Step Africa, it was just one idea of many different ways I thought as a 21-year-old man of where I might go. I was looking at this, that, and Step Africa was an option that really brought together some of the loves I had for the arts and travel and cross-cultural exchange. So I think that kind of motivated us, but so that when, when the idea hits, the transition from the idea to actual implementation it's about a three-year process before I go from the idea from South Africa to bringing it to fruition in December of 1994. And there's a lot of steps in there, but um, I mean, it took tremendous creativity and tapping into skills I didn't even know I had and mobilizing a community to help bring the idea. Because clearly I couldn't do it by myself, right? The idea could start but it took so many individuals to come together and contribute to the process and building of Step Africa. But it was supposed to just be a one a one year thing. Ooh. Do it. I just mm-hmm. want to make it happen, and then that was it. Then I was going to figure out what else I'm going to do. What I didn't expect was once we did it, that others would be so vested in what we had created together, and that's the only reason I even sit here today with this mural behind me is because other people got really excited about the idea and the possibility. And then we just started moving into a direction that I, I didn't expect to be here you know, mm-hmm. at all. I really didn't. Wow. Yeah. So you've built this up to this tremendous company that's recognized. I've done some of the steps at Namak. Aaron is watching the video, right? I'm learning yes, along. Yes. I, I did I, not I've play. I've done the tutorial. So My daughters have done the tutorial. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but then on the subject of unexpected, we then meet quarantine. And mm. from what I saw from the outside, you know, Step Africa was poised to like really go to like explosive growth. Can you take us to that moment where you realize that you have to shut it all down for an undefined period of time. Maybe it's going to be a couple of weeks. I don't know. But like, where were you? Who was the first person who you called, you know, to lean on as it was yeah. really registering that things were about to go way left? No, that was a crazy moment. So I'll tell you where we were when uh, COVID hit. South Africa was off Broadway in the third week of a very successful run of our production, Drum Folk, and completely sold out. We had a weekend of shows coming up. It was just gonna be amazing. We were gonna have to go out with a huge bang and we had a tour all around the world scheduled. We went to Ghana, we went to be in DC. Um, uh, there were some other international programs we were working on, Slovenia, all this great stuff. And, and, and Drum Folk, a show that we had taken almost a year to develop um, in terms of rehearsal and creative process, uh, was going to really start touring the country. 
So on Thursday, March 12th, when I walk into the theater and we start to see um, the audiences disappear from the school shows that we're doing, like it's almost a trickle. I was like, what in the world is happening? And that night they said that they were shutting down the theater. So we're in Times Square, the theater where we were performing is at 47, right in the middle. You know, I love, I'm a Broadway guy. I love going to Broadway shows off Broadway, off on Broadway. So we're there and I just couldn't believe I saw the lights go down mm. American theater. And so I'm still like, to be honest, I still have PTSD from that happening. I mean, I've not been to New York since. And I told myself not go back to New York until there's a show I can see because I want to see New York as New York that I love. Although New York is showing its own kind of brand of resilience. So I might go ahead and head up there sometime this summer. But um, so the, I was there for that. And I think I was in shock thinking like, oh, okay, you know, this is America. We'll figure this out in a couple of weeks. There's no way that we're not shutting down. But then we started seeing all these cancellations happen to a schedule that myself and our agents had worked, you know, a year to develop, just go away. So it was clear that there was not gonna be two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months. We didn't know. Yeah. So at that point, I was just like, uh, my, the first people I went to was really my staff um, and my board of directors at Step Africa. That's who I, you know, relied on initially. And we just started figuring out a way to A, keep our artists employed. That was paramount. Um, we did have to do a short two-week furlough, but I'm very proud to say that was the extent of it. And we even supported our artists during that process. Uh, but we just started just trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do? And what are we going to create? And that led to us creating some really great work for the digital platform mm -hmm. over the last year. So I'm, we're just like, um, I became like a TV producer. Mm -hmm. I just started not performing for the stage, but for the camera. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been a huge, exciting stretch that I did not expect, you know, it's like, I call it a one-year fellowship in TV and digital. Mm -hmm. yeah. That will stay with us forever. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I would, I, I still would have wished it never happened. I'd rather have been doing what we did, but, you know, we decided to figure out a way to survive versus just, you know, rolling up into a ball and just waiting it out. We kind of hit it very aggressively and said, let's just create. We can't rehearse indoors. We'll rehearse outdoors. If we can't do this, if we have to wear a mask when we do the video, you wear a mask, make the video with a mask. We, we, we created a video called Mask It Up. You should play that. Yes. So I watched Mask It Up. I did too. And bro, I got to tell you, that <laughs> is so DC. I mean, it yeah. is so DC from the, the music, the the shout outs, the hype man, the location, the dancers, you would think that it was made by a DC native. Well, thank you for that, right? Yes. But you know, we treated that 
it's for me, it was like we were honoring the culture. It was very so, much honoring the culture. I was going to do some pseudo analysis of what the culture responds. The guy who actually wrote that, you know, wrote that little lyric for us, Mask It Up, is from Glenn Aaron. So he's a DNA. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he played he in a go go like band. You yes. Know, so he, he relied on him a lot just mm -hmm. to make sure that we were honoring the tradition. You know, we watched mm -hmm. other videos before we shot this video. So mm -hmm. Mask Up to me was a really important moment in COVID. Mm -hmm. um, because A, it was about also, I was very, I was like aggressively targeted on creating something for DC. Yeah. I wasn't mm -hmm. worried about will it tour anywhere else? Will anybody else see it? I didn't even care. I, mm -hmm. I was making, I was really, not even, I was making it for Ward, wherever there were African Americans in DC. That's right. Yeah. For them. Yeah. And I think that kind of narrow, that really focused approach to creativity versus normally I'm creating for the mass market, I'm creating for this. Right allowed us to do something really special, you know? Yeah. So that's a public service announcement in the sense that it's, you know, you're saying mask it up, you're saying stay six feet apart, but there is such a strong um, emotional arc to it in the sense mm -hmm. that we're in the midst of something really trying and terrible, but I felt really encouraged by the end sure. of it. Yes, I'm ready to jam. So what we're curious right. about is, how the physicality of stepping can ignite the spirit and give you the sense that it, it might be tough right now, but mm -hmm. as I'm dancing, I'm kind of building up a sense of resolve, a sense yeah. of determination so that my body actually is telling my brain what we fit to do and we're about to get through it. So can you talk to us about like, do you see it that way from your perspective as the creator? Are you connecting these things? Do you know that you're playing with our emotions like that and getting us, you know, really hyped up like that? No, I think, you know, when I look at, when I look at the artists of Step Africa in particular, right? Um, these are artists who, for who dance. And I used to, I danced with the company before. I focused mostly on managing the company, you know, there, we would, although we would be dancing for an audience, so many times we are dancing because we really love this form. And we love performing, of course, and being on stage, but we also just love the action of doing the form. And not just to, by yourself, but together. So creating that sound together is it's a really interesting, stepping to me is very interesting that way because you're not just the dancer, also the music. So you have to you have to not only just perform, you have to be visually interesting, you must be musically interesting. So with your fellow artists, you're making music. So you must be in sync on a whole different level than when you're just listening to the music. You know, like for ballet ballerina or ballet, you know, they listen to the music, they interpret together, and they're all on that wonderful. Mm -hmm. But for us, we are both the music and the dance. So. When I look at my dancers now and I see them creating music with their bodies and what it, it the joy and the energy that it brings to them when they start to do it, you know, I see that that is, that is one way that you survive because that's not taken away from you in COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. Aspect of performing it for others may be, but we were very artist-centered in that we wanted to still create a space for artists to, to do what they do best, to perform, to create. And I think Mask It Up is one example of that. I mean, the mayor of DC 
uh, I love that she retweeted that video and we got a lot of great press about it because, you know, we really focused on bringing a message to our community that we could have fun with, but also get something from, you know? To me, it was COVID. Like, it's what we're doing now. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, just adjust, adapt, yeah. and we'll stay ready. So that's something I think I'll take it with me even out of COVID. And I've always had been a part of me. Staying ready for whatever comes and then creating through that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like keep creating. Mm-hmm. I don't know what moment that I could be hit with that wouldn't, I just would not still want to create. The work songs come to mind, the work songs of guys who were in incredibly different circumstances, you know, backbreaking work on the chain gang or mm-hmm. on what might as well have been a chain gang, but they're singing and those work songs, again, there is a joy in the struggle kind of sentiment yeah. to it and with mask it up it's like we're in this struggle and we will be as joyful as we possibly can because we need to be why not let's take advantage of it and that's who we are as people you know regardless joy there's joy i right. think that's what we need and i think in any sabbatical performance joy is always centered because at the end of the day there is always joy i mean from the outside someone could look at african-american experience and slavery in that moment, but we know that we moved through all of those periods of time. Mm-hmm. And in the most horrible situations, you know, it's, you know, you, you find joy. There's still joy. There's still joy in being together. There's still joy in humanity and our humanity and life. And the sun coming up is just kind of fascinating. I'm not thinking about the mm-hmm. spiritual songs and how they sustained people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. Yeah, and so many other cultures have examples of that. You know? Oh, absolutely. And I think what we're doing is in doing those movements and making the music and singing and moving our bodies, we're telling ourselves, this is how we're going to feel. Through right. This regardless. Right, regardless yeah. of what's going on around us, this is what we're going to look yeah. like. We have a question about Juneteenth and then we're going to talk about what's next for Step Africa. And then we're going to come back to Joy to close it out. Yeah, and we, we are speaking, you know, not long after Juneteenth, and I know Step Africa had a virtual event, but as a Houston native, uh, how did you recognize Juneteenth growing up? Well, uh, Juneteenth for me has always been red soda water and barbecue, right? Yes. Um, big red? Big red? Which red soda water? Big red! <laughs> there we go. Big all right. Red. <laughs> Big red all day. So much so that to this day, if I go home to Texas, I, I, I want to at least have at least a sip of big red. You know? There we go. <laughs> red soda water, big red. Um, and it really is just a gathering day. I mean, I really do recognize Juneteenth as a uniquely, like we say, like we said in the video that we created, it is the longest running African-American holiday. And that alone makes Juneteenth significant. What I don't understand is why African-American culture from other parts of didn't really celebrate, I guess it would be kind of a good question to ask, why didn't we celebrate? There is Emancipation Day here in DC, which is specific to DC. Watch Night has been a big part of some African-American churches, but it's not aggressively connected to slavery and the ending of slavery in America. 
And I know it's not taught that way as much as it should, as it could be. So how Juneteenth that one day um, for nationally is, is really, really fascinating. Well, a lot more research has to be done. So when COVID hit and we were looking for a day to mobilize and create around, Juneteenth became that day. Juneteenth became that day. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you the story because it was fascinating for me. We were going to do a Juneteenth video. We were, that was be our first major video, you know, with our first attempt, if I should say. And I'll never forget uh, the former president of the United States was going to hold a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa. Yeah. And it was this uproar. Remember that? This uproar. I remember. He's saying, what? You know, that's so disrespectful. And I'll never forget, I pulled up my CNN app and Juneteenth was at the top of the headline. And all of a sudden, people were talking about this holiday all across America that they never even considered it before. So our little Juneteenth virtual celebration went from, I thought we might get like 100 views. We got like 18,000 views for that. So I was like, okay. So then a year later, our Juneteenth video, you know, it's it a whole different, it was a now, we started working on it like six months ago. And so we and Juneteenth will now be something that we really celebrate with even more intentionality in the future in the years to come. Mm -hmm. and I'm glad about that. This is the chance to learn about, to bring forth stories that we just haven't heard to this point. Well, we have a lot of, you know, right now we're on finally on a hiatus, a well mm -hmm. hiatus. So. I just, you know, thanks so much to all the sponsors and individual donors who really helped Step Africa get through the meat of this pandemic, hopefully. There's nothing but brighter days ahead. And so that's what we're focused on. We're focused on the brighter days. You know, talk about variants and whatnot. We're not worried about that right now. We're focused on coming back together and doing what we do best and performing live and in person. So in August, uh, we will have our first live show in DC at the Kennedy Center. And we're looking forward to taking that on tour across America, starting in September. We'll be in Iowa City, possibly Nebraska. We'll be at the Strathmore, and then we'll also be at um, Arena Stage for Juneteenth next year. So drum folk tells a story about African-American history that most folks do not know. Do you want to tell us a little bit? Yeah, I'll give a little something. You give us a little something, something. <laughs> a little something, something. No, I mean, still some gonna buy the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You got. I mean, talking about it and seeing the two different things. But exactly. Exactly. Book is based on the Stonewall Rebellion of 1739. Wow. Okay. Which is featured in the Museum of African American History and Culture. Yeah. Small exhibit. There's a small drum that they have there from, they say from the Stonewall Rebellion, but. That rebellion led to the Negro Act of 1740, which is horrible piece of legislation by American colonists before America was even America. That's right. To really restrict and limit black life, African life. And, and for us here, especially to your audience and especially for Af African-Americans, it's a significant moment in history because some scholars say is the Stonewall Rebellion and the Negro and the subsequent Negro Act of 1740 that moment when African people in the Americas, in, in America, in the United States, what would become America, have to leave behind African traditions? 
and to really just talk about resilience, readapt and figure it out. Because the Negro in the 40s said we cannot read, we cannot write, we cannot gather in groups over 20, we cannot wear certain clothing, and we cannot use our drums. So we had to leave Africa behind through legislation and start looking at how we reshaped and redeveloped our culture. So it's a moment in history that I cannot wait to really, really talk about with our community across the country. Because, you know, we, we, we don't talk a lot about the development and shaping of African-American culture and right. what, what was lost and what, we, and what we, through muscle memory and through creativity, retain. And we retain incredible amounts. Mm-hmm. So drum folk will be a launching pad for that conversation. And I really cannot wait to have it. I think we also don't talk enough about the number of rebellions that occurred over time and the different ways in which we rebelled. There's that t-shirt that says, you know, I'm not my ancestor, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll fuck you up or whatever mm-hmm. the t-shirt says. <laughs> but it doesn't acknowledge the multiple yeah. ways that our ancestors exercised rebellion, both right. small and large. And then that, uh, that performance is coming also in the wake of legislation that continues to want to reshape history and tell us about a story about a country that doesn't exist. And so what your work is gonna contribute is, no, this is who we were and this is who we are. We actually are. Yeah, I don't like, I'm glad you mentioned that t-shirt. I don't like that t-shirt because we are our ancestors, quite honestly, and we stand on their shoulders. And I think it shows us a lack of understanding of history. Right. We probably need to teach those people who say they're not their ancestors is maybe they need to study a little more about the history of their ancestors. I have a little deeper into African-American history, dive way beyond what's taught in elementary, middle and high school, and even an intro African-American American studies class at a, at a black college only gives you a teach. Because if you know the history, you will know that actually you are your ancestors and that what, you, what we should be thankful for is that the response to protest is quite different than it was in 1739 America colony, right? That's right. So, Let's not disrespect our ancestors and what they went through mm-hmm. and the aggressive system against them to oppress that only that we still deal with effects today. You know, it's in different right. police brutality, legislation and all that, but it is in no comparison to what we dealt with. So I hope that some of uh hope somebody who wears that shirt is listening because I would just say. We need to read From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin as a primer, and then go to the museum about 30 times, and then let's really deal into this issue, you know, and build upon the legacy. Brian, you're gonna step into a moment of resilience and we need the proper beats in our headphones uh, to get us through that moment. Uh, what music are you putting on when you know there's uh, some resilience needed in, in, your, in your life, in your world? Oh, man. You know what song I would probably play? It's so corny. But I would, actually, it's not corny. I would probably play that song by Sound of Blackness. Be Optimistic? Yes. Ah. I remember buying that single that Sam Goody on tape. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like, I think that song kind of sums it up. Like, as long as you keep your head to the sky, there's nothing yeah. else, you know, and that's what we have to do. So I feel like that song in particular sums up my work in a sense is that because a lot of times we are, you know, South Africa and when we enter like this main, this mainstream theater world, a lot of critics who are not African-American do not understand why we center joy so much in our work, you know? And they haven't asked me that question. They've just written and just gone on their way, but I'm, I'm watching it, I notice it. But I'm very clear that joy is always centered because with even with all this challenging history, I know that there has been tremendous joy, right? And that there's been tremendous pride and love and family and caring for and progress, even when the progress has been suppressed or aggressively countered with, you know, aggression, you know, with uh, our force. So I always center joy, and that will always be a focus of Sabaka's work, because I feel that's our that's really our story. It's really a human story at the end of the day, and I just want our community to recognize that and to see that as much as possible. I want to see victory. So that song to me is about victory. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation. We thoroughly enjoyed it. We hope that you did. Wow. I had a great time talking with you all. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. We look forward to seeing the show live and yeah. in person. I'm also excited to get back to the Christmas show as well. I love the yes. Africa yes. Christmas show. Yeah. It felt a little weird to go through the Christmas season and not have the, uh, yeah. the show there. So continue to be well, and we hope to talk with you again soon. All right, take care. Thanks, guys. All right, be well. Thank you for listening to The DAP Project. We hope this conversation inspired you to dream, lean on your community when times are hard, and continue pushing to your grandest ambitions. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to be sure you don't miss our great episodes. But before we go, we want to remind you of our July selection for TDPB reading, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Our book talk will be Saturday, July 31st on IG Live at the.dap.project. And we'll have a special guest joining us. My friend, my sister, Brandon Wilburn Herbert, host of the Instagram account, Beef Loves the Love. Remember, resistance is a highway with many lanes and we hope you find yours. Take care, folks. Y'all ready? Well, get ready. We got something for y'all.